0: Welcome to episode 146 of the Podium and Panel podcast. We have three cases today, and I'm flying solo again this week as Dan is in Ireland uh, and will return next week, so you're stuck with me. But three really interesting cases, all from the uh, Illinois Appellate Court, which was, shall we say, extraordinarily busy this week with oral arguments across the across the various districts. Uh, Our first case is from the Illinois Appellate Court 1st District, Sanders versus Orbitz Worldwide. Our second case is from the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District, Dupuis versus Riverside Health System Corp. And our third case is also from the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd 3rd District is Pasifume versus Jurek. And I am sure I am mispronouncing that first name. Jurek I can pronounce, but the first name, not so much. I'll do that. Did the best I could there. So turning to our first case, and and, and before we begin, it's these cases all raise really interesting issues of appellate procedure, and inform um, what trial lawyers should be doing in preparing cases for appeals. You'll see that as we go through. It's a it's a very nice set of cases. So as to our starting with our first case, Sanders versus Orbitz Worldwide. Can there be contribution among tort in a complaint that alleges violations arising out of the Illinois Human Rights Act? That is the thrust of the issue to be considered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Sanders versus Orbitz worldwide. The, the plaintiff, the plaintiffs, I should say, were allegedly raped by an employee of Orbitz while they were employed by Havis. That's H-A-V-A-S. A contractor of Orbits. This was an executive. The alleged uh, criminal actor is a, was a, an executive at Orbits, and Havis was a, a marketing subcontractor of Orbits. The plaintiff sued the alleged rapist and Orbits under the Gender Violence Act, the Illinois Human Rights Act, negligence, supervision, and retention, battery, assault, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Orbitz filed a third-party complaint against Havis, and Havis, in settling with the plaintiff, sought a good-faith finding of the Joint Tort Feasers Contribution Act. They did that, for those that aren't familiar with that act, in order to get a dismissal of the third-party claim. They could settle directly with the plaintiff, and then the defendant, the remaining defendant, Orbitz, in this case, uh, granted the motion and allocated 30% of the settlement, of the plaintiff's pain and suffering as a set off for Orbits, The plaintiffs appealed contending that they did not sue in tort and that Orbits and Havis are not joint tortfeasors, even if there are claims in tort. So this oral argument started off with a really basic question for counsel for the appellant, the plaintiff. What is a tort? And Let's say that counsel struggled to answer that question. A tort, as I understand it, and as I was taught, and my experience tells me, is a civil wrong that is isn't a breach of contract. Uh, She discussed it in terms of negligence, then realized, oh no, that's not really it, because here I am alleging torts that are not negligence. I've alleged intentional torts, assault and battery are intentional torts. They're not negligence she's also alleged intentional infliction of emotional distress on behalf of her client which if it occurred as as she claimed uh, or as is alleged I should say then there's no doubt that uh, uh, that those would be uh, torts and the issue is how do you have contribution or can you have contribution uh, among those uh, you know, can you can you do that uh, how do you allocate them? These claims arise under the Illinois Human Rights Act. And so the question is, does that create a, a tort cause of action? Um, the, uh, does this create a, a tort cause of action? And how do you uh, deal with, with that situation? So it was a very interesting uh, argument, and as I said, rather esoteric, I have never seen a situation uh, quite like this, uh, and, and I, I really struggled with how conceptually to think about a situation where the the employer of the plaintiff did not employ the uh, alleged the alleged rapist, but they you know the allegations relate to their failure and she couldn't sue them directly because they're her employer. So Orbit sued them for third party uh, in third party for their failure to protect. I don't even understand Orbit's theory against against Havis for their for Havis's failure to protect the plaintiff from Orbit's executive. I'm I, I really I really struggled with what the theory was. I, I went through the docket pretty thoroughly here and. It was, uh, there, there wasn't a, uh, the, or I should say, the settlement was confidential. So I couldn't figure out what, how much it was and not a surprise in a case like this. Um, the, the so that's, so you couldn't really figure out what it was. The, the settlement agreement, you didn't see that wasn't available. Oftentimes these motions, uh, for good faith finding attach that document, uh, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't done here, uh. Because it was presumably it was provided to the court in camera, uh, but given the confidential nature and given the the kind of case that it is, uh, as well as the nature of the claims that are made, again, not surprising that this was confidential. uh, And then how you, but you don't need that in order to really to to deal with the legal issue. And the legal issue is how do you. how does this get divided? I, I I don't have any great insights. I can't wait to hear what the court has to say about this. I had mentioned at the, at the start that what we would talk about is what the lawyers, you know, how, how trial lawyers should handle this thing. And this was handled properly in terms of getting this to the appellate court. The, uh, you might ask, how did you, how, this is an interlocutory review. It, because it involves a claim that uh, the, it involves a claim that the um, court improperly allocated the, the uh, settlement between plaintiff and Havis. So it's they may have dismissed the claim. So it was a final order made or made final by, by a 304 finding. Um, and there, there were several orders to get to that point. They needed to do some things. And they did that so that they made this appealable and jurisdiction did not come up uh, in the oral argument that it seemed that the court had jurisdiction. So with that, we will uh, continue to our next case. So for our second case, uh, we have the principal question, when can quote, I do not recall one of the favorite answers to give on Capitol Hill, whether no matter what your politics are, they all answer that. Well, they all answer it that way. Uh, when can that be sufficient to be a judicial admission of the inability of the plaintiff to constitute a judicial admission? That is the principal issue to be resolved when the Illinois appellate court third district, decides Dupuis versus Riverside Health Systems Corp. But there's a whole lot of other issues we're going to get to here, get that are subsidiary to that. Uh, The plaintiff alleges that she slipped and fell on ice in a parking garage at the defendant's property. The plaintiff testified, however, that she could not recall where she was standing when she fell, where she fell, how she fell, and what the condition of the ground was. At least that's the plaintiff or the defendant's version of her testimony. Uh, We'll get to the controversy over what she actually testified to in a moment. The circuit court grant and that's amazing considering we have a transcript of her deposition. Uh, the circuit court granted summary judgment, but did not specify its reasoning. It it didn't say why they was reaching this, whether it had done this on the judicial admission route or 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 through some other other means. Uh, the plaintiff appealed, contending that the failure to recall could not constitute a judicial admission, and that there they were in the middle of the discovery middle of discovery when the motion was filed, and that. Uh, the plaintiff could have gotten an expert. The plaintiff also contended that the record of the deposition was not complete because the pictures referenced in the deposition were not attached to the deposition record. Uh, he also submitted, there was an affidavit that was submitted uh, in opposition to the motion, which you tried to fill in some of the blanks. There's dispute as to whether to fill in the blanks. And frankly, can you fill in blanks on uh, that contradict the testimony that you gave? Um, are, are, are you allowed to do that? I, I'm not so sure. But if she says, I don't know, can did they have the follow-up? And this was unclear. Did they have the follow-up that asked, is there anything would refresh your recollection? And I, in the history of the world, when I've asked that question, have never not the history, the history of my world, have never gotten the answer. Oh, yeah, there's this other thing that would refresh my recollection. Because if they did, I would have got it. And said, so, here, does this refresh your recollection? And they had never answered the question. They always answer the question, no, there's nothing to refresh my recollection. Outstanding. So when you show up at trial, I don't want you coming in and saying that you are all refreshed uh, when there you told me there was nothing that would refresh your recollection, or at least it gives us some cross-examination on that point. As a matter of appellate procedure, uh, whose responsibility is it to get the pictures into the record? The plaintiff appellant contended that the circuit court could not have properly considered the deposition without these the pictures as exhibits and assailed the circuit court's opinion on that basis, while the Defendant appellee contended that any deficiency in the record is the responsibility of and chargeable to the appellant. So let's start with that last issue. Uh, And that's, I think both positions have merit. Uh, The, how do you consider a deposition without having the pictures? But then why did, if you thought that the pictures were necessary, why did the plaintiff supplement the record and get those pictures in he, the counsel for the plaintiff, uh, I almost said testified, argued that I recall that at the deposition, she marked the pictures while counsel for the defendant says there was no marking of the pictures, She couldn't say where she fell. Um, well, it would be really nice to have the pictures to know what she did uh, if she could have marked them where she fell or or, or was unable to. Who, who knows? That would certainly undercut this idea that she couldn't remember if all of a sudden she's marking the pictures um, as to, as to where she fell. So that will be an interesting, how the court kind of deals with that issue. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I I don't understand why you wouldn't attach the pictures to the deposition if you were the defendant and why the I don't understand why the plaintiff didn't raise this issue in his response to the motion for summary judgment saying, your honor, the record's incomplete. You need the, uh, you, you, you need the the records, in order the the pictures, in order to fully consider this motion, and here they are, uh, and and get them into the record at the trial level. I, I I really don't understand what was why that happened. The other thing that that I don't understand, and what I think should have happened if the plaintiff thought they were in the middle of discovery and needed needed things, this was not a sealatex type motion for summary judgment where they're basically saying the plaintiff can't make out an element. They were saying if she affirmatively can't prove it. This was an unwitnessed fall. Uh, there was no video. There were some pictures taken, but they were taken months later to depict this, uh, this condition. But she didn't know where she fell, according to the defendant. There was apparently a depression that she claimed. Uh, and that's where the water unnaturally accumulated and turned to ice. And that's where she fell. But she couldn't specify that it was in fact an unnatural accumulation. For those unfamiliar with Illinois law, very briefly, in order for a landowner to be liable for the uh, a fall on ice, the ice or water has to be uh, the result of an unnatural accumulation. So a downspout that where the water then freezes uh, out of the downspout or a, a, a refreeze type situation. So they plow the snow away, the water the, uh, the Some of the snow melts, it, it, it collects, it, you know, it flows, it collects, it refreezes, that can be an unnatural accumulation. And, and in those circumstances, a plaintiff, I'm sorry, a defendant could be liable for that unnatural uh, accumulation. So what we have in this circumstance is uh, the plaintiff doesn't know where she fell, so she can't say how, how or when that, that accumulated. Uh, or whether it was the result of a uh, whether it was the result of an unnatural accumulation. The, I, I, again, this is a, I, I don't know how the plaintiff gets around her it, it, how the plaintiff gets around this idea that she doesn't remember how the accident happened or where she fell or what she fell on. Um, and the defense or the plaintiff criticized defense lawyers for the how they asked the questions saying that they weren't specific enough and, and that they were asking immediately before and immediately after the fall, but not at the time of the fall. Um, it'll be interesting to see if how much of the deposition gets quoted so we can see whether the questions are really asked appropriately. The defendant or the plaintiff was arguing that the questions weren't asked appropriately. Well, if they weren't asked appropriately, then you needed to start objecting um, and and get the question and, or rehabilitate her. Um, it also calls into question the. The preparation for this witness, uh, you know, what she did to prepare uh, to get to make sure that she answered questions about where she fell, because that you would think those the plaintiff's lawyer before he took the case knew the answers to these questions. Because if she didn't wasn't able to t- identify these things, then didn't have much of a case, and why'd you take it in the first place? So plainly, at some point, it, it seems pretty clear he would have gotten these answers, but I very confusing here, but. I think the, again, uh, kind of going with the theme of this particular episode, proceed. You know, it gives a real instruction both the plans council and defense council how to deal with these situations, with the one hundred and ninety-one B affidavit, the, the deposition or the uh, the photographs attached to the deposition, how to ask the questions, how to preserve the issue. Uh, again, there's seems to be some gaps in what we know, uh, but a good good instruction, a good reminder on how to how to proceed. Uh, in in handling these cases for, for, for both sides. So with that, we'll turn to our third case. Turning to our third case, are lost household services separate from a loss of consortium claim generally, and are they subject to an expert's financial calculation? Did the court err in allowing the plaintiff's expert to testify to lost household services beyond the date of the plaintiff's remarriage. Is the standard of review for these issues an abuse of discretion because it relates to the admission of evidence, or is it de novo because it relates to a question of law? Did the defendant waive the issue by not offering a proposed verdict form that addressed the alleged evidentiary issue? Those are the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District decides Pasifume versus Jerk. and again, apologies for the mis- Pronunciation arising out of a medical malpractice case, the plaintiff was awarded one point four million dollars based upon. Well, they were awarded a larger amount, but the portion we're focused on is the one point four million dollars. One point four million dollars based upon testimony of plaintiff's expert Stan Smith, who calculated the lost services to be about one million dollars. An offer of proof, he te- on an offer of proof, he testified that the value of the services from the date of the death to the date of the remarriage, about fifteen months later. Was twenty four thousand dollars. The defendant has sought a new trial or a remitter on this issue. I have to confess, I don't have much familiarity with the particulars of how or what's included of this kind in uh, in, in a loss of consortium claim. Uh, certainly, the the loss of cert, you know, are these calculable? Is the the argument from the defendant who went deep into the case law, Pfeifer Pfeiffer and two cases called Dotson and a bunch of other cases uh, really got into the weeds on this issue. Both, both sides did. Uh, and the court was you know, all in there. So I, I didn't have the kind of time to really dig in and evaluate what this is. But I point this out as this is a big issue. We're talking if all of a sudden, it's the case that let's suppose the defense right and you know, this is not how this was to be done or not how it's been done in the past and now it can be done this way. This is a whole new avenue of damages allegedly or maybe it's just been sitting there all the whole time and players have been leaving it on the table. So either way, it's a big deal uh, that's going have to get going have to get dealt with. Uh, I, I can see this is a kind of case that's going to go to the, uh, the Supreme Court and I really hope that we don't have a waiver here. Uh, on the defend or the plaintiff argues the defendants waived it because they didn't preserve the issue appropriately. I really hope that isn't what happened here. Not because I want the defendant to win or lose, but I want an answer to the question. Um, and, and I think it's an interesting question. And I hope they, if they do find waiver, they look past it and say that's ah, a limitation on the parties. We're going to actually deal with the issue unless they find that they can't make a decision because the waiver is so so, so substantial. But I, it, I think everyone would benefit from an answer in this particular case. And how long? And also, as to how long these damages continue for? Uh, it's always been the law, as I understood it, that once you remarry, no more loss of consortium damages. You you got remarried. You didn't. You you replaced the deceased spouse with another spouse. Uh, so you don't. You now have those services. Uh, you you have those services. So I, I, I don't I, I don't understand that portion of the ruling. And as I said, the defendants are either seeking a new trial on this issue. They're not talking, I mean, they only, the seemingly, the only issue that came up to argue argument was this, it seems to be the only issue they've appealed on um, is this damages issue. Uh, I don't know how much of the overall judgment that dealt with, but certainly a substantial portion because we're talking about at least uh, in a very high six figures, if not in the seven figures, in terms of the amount that they want to have either
1: to, to require a new trial strike the testimony and, and, or, or to have a remitter of the, of what Smith
0: testified to, I think was above a million dollars. You take out the 24,000 that she's allowed. And so it would be a remittator of just under a million dollars, uh, which is a whole boatload of money. Uh, even, even in today's environment, that's a whole boatload of money. So it's, it's a very, um, it's an issue that those that handle these kinds of cases need to be certainly aware of. Um, I imagine you're going to see others trying to do this. If, uh, Mr. Smith may have covered him out, harved himself out yet another little cottage industry for obtaining recovery. So, uh, kudos for creativity, but not too many, uh, kudos for creativity and trying to push the envelope and what's allowed. Um, I, I wish I had more to say about this, but it's a, uh, and, and if there's others that have some insight, that would be helpful. But it's a really—I um, had to listen to the oral argument a couple times to really digest uh, the issue, uh, to be able to understand it enough to even say what limited things I've said about it and write about it just a little bit. But a very interesting issue and one that uh, should be should be kept tabs on. The. Uh, turning to our other segments uh, BI for COVID, uh, you know, I saw some district court opinions this week, nothing big from the appellate courts. Uh, so we'll continue to keep an eye on that. There was one case that came down from the appellate court with regards to our prediction, sure to go wrong. Um, and uh, but we'll talk about that next week. When, when Dan gets back, that was Ori versus Naperville. So we'll talk about that when we're together. Um, I, I'm going to also I'm also going to hold off on doing predictions on these cases, uh, and see if Dan wants to get in on the action or if I'm going to do them solo, which would kind of have us predicting different cases, which doesn't seem like a great idea. Um, which brings us to the rule of the week. Uh, last week we mentioned SB seventeen forty eight, uh, and at the time we recorded, I had I did not realize that the there was an amendment that had been proposed in the House, so that the bill has moved from the Senate to the House was heard this week uh, in the uh, in the House Judiciary Committee Civil. Um, and uh, testimony was offered by both the President of ITLA and the President of IDC. Um, and, but there's an amendment that is now gone that I think is going to come onto the floor uh, after it passed out of committee that ameliorates but doesn't eliminate all of the problems, at least with the speedy trial portion of the bill. Frankly, I think it's unnecessary but uh plainly that is not the view of many uh so we'll see um how how that amendment proceeds i uh, keep an eye on that because this is a really big issue um it's going to be the subject of my column this week in the chicago daily law bulletins to so keep an eye out uh, eye out for that this would be a big change that would effectively give a statutory speedy trial right in civil cases to Plaintiffs over 67 and wrongful death plaintiffs who can show substantial physical or mental or physical or financial hardship as a result of the death, they get a trial within a year. What, this, what the amendment would do is allow for extensions and say that the trial date only applied to those defendants who had appeared and answered at the time, had been noticed and appeared and answered at the time of the motion. So it eliminates some of the opportunities for shenanigans uh, that uh, the original drafting had uh, certainly would have allowed. Um, so, something to keep an eye on. So, with that, I will take my leave. I appreciate everybody joining us this week.
1: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.